Welcome to the Addiction Counselor Exam Review. This presentation is part of the Addiction Counselor Certification Training. Go to https slash www.allceus.com slash certificate dash tracks to learn more about our specialty certificates starting at $149. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to today's review for the Alcohol and Drug Counselor Exam. Today, we're going to be talking about understanding addiction and recovery capital. So if you're following along in your ICNRC exam review book or your MCAP review book, this is towards the beginning of the book is what we're talking about today. So how big of a problem is addiction and what is it? So let's talk about that for a few minutes. Past 30-day statistics, according to the 2012 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, indicated that 6.5% of the population, over 12, reported heavy drinking. So if you go to Walmart or your church or wherever and look around at 100 people that are over the age of 12, almost seven of those more than six of those, have reported heavy drinking in the past 30 days. And 9.2% of them reported illicit drug use. And that includes marijuana. So, you know, cocaine, marijuana, opiates, anything that was not medically prescribed and used as prescribed. The majority of people who use recreationally will not need treatment, though. So, just because somebody experiments with alcohol or drugs doesn't mean that they're going to develop an addiction. There are some people who are at higher risk, and we know some of the risk factors, which we'll talk about in later podcasts. But it is important to, you know, not freak out right away if you find out that your child, for example, has experimented with a drug. Definitely want to kind of nip that in the bud. But, it, you know, recognizing that pe some people can recreationally use. Addiction is characterized by compulsive craving for the substance and using that substance despite negative consequences. So compulsive craving means that the person is thinking about it a lot. And sometimes they don't even feel like they can function normally for them without having the substance in their system. So that thought is just constantly on their mind. And they... It distracts them from other areas of life. They spend a lot of time thinking about how to get the substance, how to use the substance, etc. And they continue to use it even though they know that substance is causing them problems legally, physically, interpersonally, etc. But the need or the desire, the perceived need for that substance is so strong that they're going to continue to use it. One of the things that I encourage clients to look at when we do our assessment is what functions is that substance or activity fulfilling? In what way is that using that beneficial? What benefits are you getting out of using it? Because people don't do things without a benefit. And a lot of times it boils down to simply, it helps me feel better. Okay, well, then I need to help you figure out why you don't feel well and how to help you feel better. Um, so we want to look at the reason somebody's using in order to develop an individualized treatment plan. Cravings and compulsive behavior are caused in large part as the consequence of substance use or addictive behaviors on the brain take effect. So you know, when you start using, regardless of whether it's one drink on Saturday or you are using in excess, it doesn't matter. Whenever you ingest a mood-altering substance, it gets into your body and makes the neurochemicals in your brain do things. And obviously, most of the time, it's producing pleasure. Now, opiates and depressants, for example, will help calm somebody down. Stimulants may rev someone up. 
both of those, regardless of which one you're taking, is often going to release dopamine, which is your pleasure chemical that says, let's do this again. So as the brain becomes kind of overwhelmed with getting saturated with those chemicals all the time, it's going to start putting on the brakes going, I can't feel this way all the time. I'm, I'm running too hot. So then it closes off um, some, of, some of the receptors, so to speak. Well, when that happens, then the person isn't getting the average amount. I try to avoid using the word normal because normal is different for every person. You know, whatever average amount of dopamine and norepinephrine and stuff that I would have before I started using, well, if I've been using a fair amount, my brain shut down some of those receptors. So I don't, I'm not getting that average amount in anymore unless I'm flooding my system by using substances. So basically, substances create a situation where you become dependent on the substance in order to have enough of those feel-good chemicals going through to even feel normal for you at a certain point. Okay, so what changes are experienced? Those neurochemicals are responsible for, well, everything. They're responsible for how you feel emotionally, how you think, whether you are able to concentrate, make decisions, memory, learning, physically, pain, whether you're awake, whether you're asleep, whether you're hungry, whether you've got the munchies, and any behavioral changes that you may experience. So when those neurochemicals get out of whack, any and all of these areas can also get disrupted, which is why people generally go back to using because they want to get those neurochemicals back, you know, up to where they can be so the person feels okay. Addiction is a primary chronic disease of the brain, of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. So it's a primary disease. That means it's not necessarily secondary to something else. It's something we have to treat as a major problem. We can't just say, well, if we treat this here, the addiction will go away. No, we have to treat the addiction. We can't just assume that it's going to remit if we address the depression or, or the pain or whatever it is. So it's a primary disease. It's chronic, which means it will continue to happen, which means even after somebody has recovery for a while, if they stop being able to get their needs met, if, they, if things get bad enough and they feel a need for that reward again, they may go back to that drug um, or addiction of choice. So it's chronic. It never really goes away. It goes into remission, if you want to think of it that way. But you'll always have that in the back of your mind as sort of something that you can do if things get really rough. It's a disease of motivation. Well, norepinephrine and dopamine are our motivation chemicals. And the chemicals that get enhanced or flooded in your brain when you take addictive substances are dopamine and norepinephrine. So people become really motivated to continue to do this. They've done experiments with rats because they can't do it on live human beings um, where they put electrodes in their brain and they've stimulated the same areas of their brain that cocaine does. And rats will sit there and press the lever to get that stimulation until they starve to death and die. Nothing else matters, not sex, not food, not drink, not sleep. They just want that stimulation. So by triggering those reward areas, by triggering those areas, you're motivated. The person is motivated to go after that addictive substance. It's like, oh, that makes me feel real good. Let's keep doing that. It can imp impact memory and then the related circuitry. And related circuitry has to do with your mood, for example. When 
the brain is not getting enough dopamine when the brain's not getting enough nor enough norepinephrine people can have difficulty concentrating have lack of you know excitement and and things like that so they may start reporting that they feel depressed or anxious you know, the side effects or the withdrawal symptoms are different for different drugs generally it's opposite so if the drug calms you down then when you're withdrawing you're probably going to feel anxious if the drug revs you up like cocaine or methamphetamine then you're when you withdraw you're probably going to feel clinically depressed but everything is getting mucked up it's not just reward driven it's also related it and affects your moods dysfunction in these circuits leads to characteristic biological psychological social and spiritual manifestations reflected in pathological pursuit of a reward and or relief by a substance you know that's the long gobbledygook version of what I just said when the brain chemicals get out of whack and the circuits kind of get disrupted because of using the drugs then you start to experience changes physically emotionally the way you think experience changes in your relationships and potentially in your spiritual sense of connectedness without treatment and or engagement addiction is progressive and can result in disability or premature death why is it progressive because your body adapts the cool thing about your body is that it wants to survive the downside is that it keeps adapting which is what we call tolerance so you start drinking and after a while the body gets used to that and it starts saying okay we can't have that much stimulation from alcohol coming in all the time so I'm going to shut down some of the receptors so in order to get the same high you feel when you drink alcohol you have to have more alcohol or stronger alcohol or combine it with something else and then eventually the brain's going to go you know what I said I can't run that hot so it's going to close down even more receptors so in order to get that same feeling that you're hoping to achieve you have to get even more or even stronger substances um, and it just keeps progressing that way and that's what we call tolerance chronic diseases disrupt normal functioning addiction disrupts normal functioning whether it's alcoholism or sex addiction or whatever when we look at the person's ability to to go through the entire day at work without drinking for example or the impact on their relationships or their um, legal issues uh, or finances we will see that the addiction tends to cause problems in one or more of these areas it tends to have serious harmful pro um, consequences in one or more of these areas so it's not just a mild uh, we got into a little bit of a disagreement about whether I had one too many drinks last night it tends to be a big interpersonal problem as well as causing problems at work chronic diseases are preventable and treatable so people you know if you never use you don't risk getting your brain chemicals out of whack and having receptors shut down and all that kind of stuff so it can be prevented um, likewise you know some people are at greater risk than others obviously prevention the easiest way to prevent is never to use for people who socially drink for example making sure that they only drink you know one drink a day whatever the current guidelines are for mild to moderate drinking and last time I checked it was less than two drinks a day and definitely no more than uh, 14 drinks in a week so that's what they're looking at in terms of you know how much can the average person handle before it starts significantly disrupting their brain chemistry now there are 
caveats to that. Some people are more sensitive to it. And if you're taking any kind of medication, it can make you more susceptible to reactions from using drugs or drinking alcohol, which can make it easier to become addicted. So it's preventable. Again, the best prevention, don't use. And it's treatable. We know that in the majority of people that we work with, that brain chemistry can rebalance. It takes time. It takes a year or more often for the brain to get rebalanced. And the person has to embark upon a recovery lifestyle. Just stopping using, well, that's a good step in the right direction. But again, the person was using for a reason, whether it was stress reduction or pain management or you know, boredom. There are a lot of reasons. We need to help the person not only stop putting a drain on their brain and getting the neurochemicals in their brain out of whack from substance use, but we also need to help them maintain a good balance of neurochemicals by taking care of themselves physically, getting enough sleep and nutrition, and addressing their thoughts. Because when we have negative thoughts, when we tend to be pessimistic and angry and anxious all the time, we're flooding our brain with those you know, stress chemicals, and that can prevent people from being happy, and it can lead to feelings of anxiety and depression, which often lead to a relapse. So we need to help people address them, their physical recovery as well as their mental recovery and interpersonal. So we want to make sure that they're not trying to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders by themselves. You know, who's in their support system? And encourage them to find and develop a good support system. Chronic diseases can last a lifetime. Like I said, once you've done it and you've figured out how to do it and that, well, it does work, you know, it has a lot of negative consequences, but it does work, then that may be something that is triggered when things start feeling really bad. When you start hurting a lot, then the desire to escape the pain or to numb or medicate the pain may come back full bore and it's going to be something that you have to have help help the person have a relapse prevention plan in place for and it can be fatal if left untreated we know that most of these addictive behaviors eating disorders people can die from um, malnutrition they can die from electrolyte imbalances from vomiting or using too many laxatives we know alcoholism can lead to cirrhosis of the liver and potentially pancreatic or liver cancer. We know that smoking can lead to oral cancer and lung cancer. We know that um, use of other drugs can lead to all kinds of other problems. So when you're looking at the addiction and the substance, we want to look at what are the consequences of use and can those consequences be fatal? So addiction is a description, not a diagnosis. Addiction erodes a person's self-control and their ability to make sound decisions. But when we're talking about diagnosis, the DSM-5, which is the book we use to make our diagnoses, has three categories, and none of them is called addiction, which throws people for a loop at first. The first category is intoxication. So is this person intoxicated on any of the various substances? And they list 10 categories of substances. Okay, if they're not intoxicated, are they withdrawing? You know, maybe they have the initial substance out of their system, but they're in the withdrawal period when their brain's going, I need more of that in order to feel like I can function. Those are the withdrawal syndrome symptoms and syndromes. Now, if they are um, 
experiencing a certain set of characteristics, such as spending more time than intended using, recovering from use, or figuring out how to procure the substance. They're having multiple problems in one or more areas of life as the result of use. They continue to use despite negative consequences. Um, and, uh, well, those are the three big ones. I can't think of the other one right now. But those are the things that we're going to look at in order to define substance use disorder. And when you look at those criteria, now, sex addiction, um, gambling, gambling addiction, a lot of those things, they're behavioral things, eating disorders, they don't fall nicely, and some of them aren't even technically diagnoses in the DSM-5. But when you look at the substance use disorder criteria, you can generally apply them to a lot of compulsive behaviors that we see that overlap or co-occur with substance disorders. So what influences addiction? How do we know who's going to develop it? Well, we don't. There is no single factor that's causative. That is, we haven't found a single factor where we can say, that does it. We know that every person who has blonde hair and brown eyes is going to become addicted. No. There, there's just too much variability because there are always exceptions. Um, general categories that we look at, biological and genetic makeup. If somebody comes from a family that has a history of addiction and or mental health issues, they're at higher risk for development of this. Why? Well, genetically, they may have neurochemical imbalances to begin with, that they may try to self-medicate with substances. Uh, they also may be in, well, we'll get into social environment in a few minutes, um, but just kind of teasing out to that, if they come from a family with substance use issues, they may be biologically pre-programmed to be more responsive to certain drugs and certain situations. Um, I know there are certain ethnicities that respond differently to alcohol and tend to get intoxicated easier um, and with less alcohol than other ethnicities. There are certain people who can take medications and it doesn't do anything for them. And other people can take that same medication and they think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. So part of it is the way your body reacts to the drugs or alcohol. Gender is related to addiction. Now, it doesn't mean men or women get addicted more often. What we have seen is there's a different pattern in addiction. Um, addi women tend to be addicted more to prescription medications um, and... Men tend to be uh, more addicted to alcohol. Women tend to need less alcohol in order to get drunk and tend to develop alcohol problems quicker than men do. So there's a difference, but whether the number of people in each gender, you know, we can't say which one is more prone to addiction. Ethnicity. Like I said, some people, some ethnicities react differently to different drugs. So being aware of that. The developmental stage that somebody began using. Now, this we do know is pretty consistent. Now, not 100%. There are some people who began experimenting with drugs when they were 9, 10, 11, 12 and never developed addiction. But a lot of people who begin using that early because the brain is still forming and the impulse control area of the brain is still forming until age 25. So those people who were using in middle school and high school 
are causing more damage and potentially more irreparable damage to their brain because it's still building. You know, it's kind of like if somebody's pouring a foundation for a building and you go in and you dump a whole bunch of water into the concrete mix, it's going to weaken it. Um, so those are things that we want to look at. Is it insurmountable? No. I mean, uh, that's the cool thing about the brain is it develops workarounds. I mean, people who are 60 and have a stroke and lose functioning of an arm for a while can often relearn to use it because the brain develops workarounds. But it's important to recognize that it's going to take time and effort and it's, you know, not something that's going to happen overnight. The social environment also impacts who develops addictions. The proximal social environment, such as your neighborhood, your school, work, friends, and family. If you're immersed in a culture where substance use is common, where people are smoking marijuana in your house, um, where people, or cigarettes even, drinking alcohol, what you see as ways to cope, you're going to learn. You know, if children see mom and dad coming home and knocking back a six-pack after work to try to deal with the stress, they're going to learn, well, when you're stressed, one way to deal with it is knock back a six-pack. So it's important to recognize that the environment people grow up in can teach them unhealthy coping skills. The environment that people grow up in can make, that, make it easier for them to get access to substances to experiment with because kids want to experiment which can cause some of that early brain change that we were just talking about also the environment that a person grows up in can create a situation where the person is under a lot of stress because of trauma or just stress in general um, and that can lead a person to want to self-medicate with substances so the environment is huge we can't say that the environment has no impact. But we also see people who grow up in some pretty challenging environments who don't develop addiction. So we can't say that that's 100% it either. The cultural portrayal and acceptance of drug use also contributes to people's development of addiction. If the culture portrays the use of a substance as helping you look cool or being popular or get power, then people are going to tend to experiment with it more, use it more, which can lead to them messing up their neurochemicals and becoming addicted. And the method of administration. Things that are eaten, for example, or like pills, pot brownies, those sorts of things, take longer to get into the system. And a lot of times what's eaten is you know, less of it actually gets to the brain because it gets goes through that digestive process. Things that are injected or snorted go to the brain much more rapidly, which produces a more intense euphoria and a more intense high. Um, and it, like I said, it happens more rapidly. So people are like, oh yeah, that's, that's the stuff. That's what I was thinking about. So the method of administration can tend to influence people's addictive behavior. If you take something, I mean, think about when you take a Tylenol, and Tylenol is not mood altering, but when you take a Tylenol, you take it uh, for pain, and it doesn't work right away. You're just kind of like sitting around, and, you know, 30 minutes later or something, you notice, you know, it doesn't hurt as much. So that's one of those moderate effects. With If you were injecting a painkiller, for example, that feeling would come right away, and you'd be like, oh, yeah, that worked. Um, so you'd be more likely to do it again. Um, and not saying that you should be injecting medications, not saying that. What I'm saying is snorting and injecting 
make it much more bioavailable and a more intense high. Genetic factors. 40 to 60% of a person's vulnerability is genetic. Remember I said, you know, we can't blame the environment for everything. Well, the environment accounts to 40 to 60% and the other part of the vulnerability is genetic. The expression of these genes is influenced by the effects of the environment. So there are people who have a gene, for example, that can cause them to have a psychotic break and develop schizophrenia, but they never do because they have a supportive environment. The people who's, who have that gene that gets activated tend to be in an environment where there's a lot of stress, and excessive stress causes that psychotic break. Not how it always happens, but that's one way the environment can influence the expression of these genes. People who have these genes who never take a drink obviously aren't going to develop addiction. You know, that gene isn't even going to be activated. The reactions and the effects of the addictive behaviors are also regulated by your genes. And a genetic predisposition to mental health issues may lead to substance use and abuse via self-medication. So people who are struggling to deal with anxiety or depression may tend to misuse substances. Anything from tobacco and, and nicotine to opiates. The social environment and peer and school influence addiction because it increases access or in a high-risk environment, there's increased access. People learn the acceptability and use patterns of others. If you're in an environment where a lot of people are using and it's acceptable, then people are going to tend to use, which can set them on that path. They may be exposed to peers or family who engage in criminal behavior. So that's one we haven't talked about yet. Criminal behavior is highly correlated with substance use issues. Why? Because a lot of times criminal behavior revolves around getting drugs, paying for drugs, or are the, res the result of something you do while under the influence of drugs. Academic and work failure can contribute to addictive behaviors. A lot of times when people feel bad because they're failing at school or failing at work, they may self-medicate. Likewise, if people are abusing substances, they're probably going to do more poorly at school and or work because they're not able to concentrate. And social skills and unstable relationships can contribute to the development of addiction if someone doesn't feel like they can communicate their needs, if they don't feel like they're getting their needs met, if they fear abandonment all the time, if they have high levels of social anxiety, it may make it difficult to make friends and have people to rely on to help them when they feel anxious or depressed or afraid or angry. And they may also feel isolated and alone, all of which can contribute to the desire to self-medicate or escape. Developmental and early use. The earlier the initiation, the greater the likelihood it progresses to addiction. Talked about this a little while ago. Doesn't always happen this way, but the brain is much more um, easily damaged when it's in that building phase. Addictive behaviors have a stronger impact on the developing brain. And it's indicative of a set of vulnerabilities and triggers. So developmentally, if the person is exposed to not just drugs, but mental illness, unstable family relationships, or abuse, they're much more likely to 
develop addictive behaviors. You can also learn more about some of the vulnerabilities for the development of addiction if you go to the um, Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, or ACEs High, website. And the method of administration, like we talked about earlier, smoking and injection increase addictive potential due to the rapid transit to the brain, which happens in seconds, and the rapid fade of the effects. So they crash a lot harder and faster. They get high a lot quicker, but they crash a lot harder than faster, which makes them want to use again to start feeling better because it feels really unpleasant when they crash. The continuum of addiction. Not everybody has addiction. Some people have substance misuse, but what are we talking about here? Well, we have social use where people use, you know, obviously it's mood altering, but it doesn't have lasting effects, not having any of the hallmark effects on their relationships or causing any problems in their life. The next step is risky or problematic use. Where they're drinking moderately to heavily, um, they are risking um, problems in their relationships at work. They're starting to think about it more. Certain activities become directly related or connected to substance use, such as if you're watching a football game, you're drinking a beer. So that can start leading to risky and problematic use. Um, abuse is when the person is using more than is helpful and it's starting to cause problems in their life. It's starting to cause problems, you know, at work in their relationships, in their health, in their finances, or in their legal history. Dependence is the final stage. And remember, substance use disorders encompass both abuse and dependence. It's just the level of severity. Dependence is when the person's brain has actually started to make changes as the result of getting flooded with those chemicals so much. So the person is, as it says, dependent on that substance to even feel okay. Many individuals never progress beyond risky consumption. I mean, think about college, if you were in a sorority or a fraternity, or you just happen to be in one of those party dorms. There are a lot of people, especially in college, who engage in risky con consumption but never progress to addiction. Being aware of the risk factors is important, but don't assume that everyone who uses in a high-risk fashion, is necessarily going to progress. Recovery from addiction is a multidimensional process which differs between people. So what works for Jane may not work for Sally and may not work for Tom. And it changes over time. What works for Jane when she's in college may be one thing, but then when she starts her career and starts having a family, you know, she has other stressors and other things that are going on, so that may not work. If she gets pregnant, for example, and she can't take medication that she's on, then, you know, we're going to have to change the recovery strategy. Some things that stay constant are the need to make sure people are getting enough sleep, eating a healthy diet, engaging in some sort of physical activity, you know, getting out, getting some sunlight. You know, good health behaviors are huge to prevent the vulnerability of relapse. Risky and problematic users have some amount of control and can learn methods to cope. So they're the people who often come home after they've had a bad day and throw back a six-pack. They still get up the next morning, they go to work, um, and it's not an everyday occurrence, so they're not starting to develop li liver problems or anything. But they realize that, you know, what they're doing is probably not the healthiest, and they can learn methods to cope. Dependent users 
feel like they have no control over their use. They just, they crave it all the time. They can't think about anything else. They have one drink or use one time and they're done. They just can't stop. Um, and it progresses over time. So what causes addiction? You know, we've talked about some factors that may be related, but what are some models that they've tried to develop to explain how de addiction develops? The first one is the moral model, and it's pretty much defunct now, but we have to talk about it because that's kind of where we started. It says that addiction is the result of defects of character. It rejects any biological basis. It says it's all spiritual and mental and focuses on individual choices and values retraining. So the moral model says it's all in your head if you've got enough willpower and you focus on doing what's right in accord with your values, you won't use anymore. It rejects any of the neurochemical issues that we've been talking about or, you know, biological changes. The disease model is the next one that kind of came to be. It says addiction is an illness resulting from an impairment of neurochemical or behavioral processes. Okay, well, that's true. Um, it's presented by Jelenic, leading the APA and the American Medical Association, adopting the disease model. And it's still prominent today. The disease model says addiction is a primary disease and not caused by anything else. So there is some argument about whether addiction is only caused by addiction um, or if there are some things that can contribute to it. In general, you know, think about it this way. When somebody's depressed, they may have depression going on, but depression doesn't cause them to use. When they drink, there's a cascade of chemical reactions as a result of that drink that causes the addictive process. So addiction is a primary disease. We've got to address that as it occurs. And we can't say that if we treat something else over here, then addiction will go away. No, no, we got to treat both things or all the things that are present. The genetic model says that individuals have a genetic predisposition and it's difficult to separate social causes from family and genetic causes. So the genetic model came up briefly, but then kind of faded away. Number one, because they couldn't successfully identify the genes that always produced addiction. Like I said, some people can have the gene and not develop an addiction. Um, so that doesn't help us. The cultural model says cultural attitudes and availability impact which addictions people develop. If the culture says there's no drinking, there's no marijuana, there's no this, there's no that, then theoretically people won't develop addictions to that. Okay, so let me just say one word to you. Prohibition. Think back into the you know early 1900s when alcohol was prohibited, when the culture allegedly said alcohol is bad. Did people stop developing addiction? No, they just hid it. They had underground stills and did what they wanted to do. They also switched to other drugs that they could get legally. So the cultural model kind of fizzled out. The blended model is what we look at now. Addiction develops in each individual as a result of a unique set of factors, which basically says we don't know what causes it. We know what contributes to it and what helps maintain it, um, so we can address those factors. But we can't look at a person, just kind of pluck them off the street and say, you have these seven factors, so you're going to develop addiction. We can't say that. Uh, so it's important that we evaluate each person independently of 
preconceived notions. So things that we want to look at um, within the cycle of addiction are reinforcers and punishments. And reinforcers are the big ones. Reinforcers add to the benefits of use. So when somebody uses and they feel great, well, they're more likely to use again. For example, when I had surgery, I was prescribed some painkillers, some opiates. And when I took those opiates, I felt awful. I couldn't concentrate. I had a headache. My vision was blurry. It was just kind of miserable. I wasn't in pain, but I wasn't able to function. So I didn't like it. It wasn't reinforcing. Now, I've worked with clients who are addicted to opiates who take them and they get more energy and they feel like they're uber selves. Well, of course, they're going to think, oh, I want to do that again. Uh, reinforcers do become less important as the drug causes neurochemical imbalances. So what does that mean? That means that rush, that high, that aha that people get when they take the drug become less important. When the brain chemistry starts to get wonky, now they're just using to feel okay. You know, they're not look necessarily needing, looking for that rush anymore. They're just struggling to feel okay. Psychological. Um, drugs can enhance the rewards of other experiences, such as sex or social engagement. So if somebody goes to a party and has a drink or a bunch of drinks, you know, they may think that that party was really awesome while they were under the influence. So they associate being under the influence with having fun at a party. It can boost self-confidence. A lot of drugs take off the um, worry filter, if you will. It can reduce social anxiety temporarily while the drug's in your system because it's a disinhibitor. So people may feel more confident. They can alleviate stress and dysphoria. Most of these drugs and the people the drugs people gravitate towards are generally the ones that make them feel good. They don't take drugs that are going to make them feel bad. So whatever drugs they're leaning towards, whether it's something that helps relieve anxiety and calm them down, or whether it's something that revs them up and makes them feel euphoric, it's making them feel good. They reduce pain, either emotional or physical. Uh, coping skills fail to develop or atrophy. As addictive behaviors substitute so psychologically you know things that we see in people with addictions if they started their addiction when they were really young their coping skills probably never developed much past that point because when they got stressed or upset after that they would use and that would make them feel better and then when they started to sober up they would use again to feel better so they got stuck in sort of this repeating cycle in recovery, it's important to tap into what coping skills the person used to have as well as identify coping skills that they can develop. When people are addicted, their confidence in dealing with life on life's terms diminishes. They start to feel like, I can't handle it. I can't deal with this. I need a drink. I need a smoke. I need a this. I need a that. I can't. I can't. I can't. And instead of approaching things that are anxiety producing or difficult, they tend to escape through the use of their addictive behaviors so they start to lose confidence in themselves they don't feel like they can handle it as they escape and withdraw from life and don't deal with problems that are out there guess what those problems get worse so when then they sober up they see the problems worse and they're like well i definitely can't deal with it now and they use again so their confidence continually diminishes then they start to feel guilty and angry at themselves substances and addictions can provide a social lubricant when people are 
at mixers and at different things, a lot of times they're drinking. You know, can I get you a drink? What would you like to drink? The expectation is that somebody's going to drink. Uh, now, what, what you're drinking doesn't have to be alcoholic, but a lot of times the, there's a social ritual that revolves around the use of alcohol and even things like marijuana um, in social situations. So it is expected and it helps people reduce their inhibitions so they feel more sociable. Biological aspects of substance use. When people use, it impacts the reward pleasure centers in the mesolimbic system. It increases the amount of dopamine in the brain. Just like that little rat, that's where they used to put the electrodes. Um, it increases that stimulation in that area of the brain so people feel rewarded, super rewarded when they take the drugs. The brain begins produ producing less dopamine or letting less dopamine through the system. The person becomes dependent on surges of dopamine to feel pleasure. So when they're not using, even things that used to make them feel happy don't produce enough dopamine to make them feel anything. So they're just like, kind of like Eeyore. You know, think about Eeyore. Sobriety produces feelings of dysphoria, which is unpleasant feelings, until the brain can rebalance itself. One of my clients referred to this as not being able to see color. You know, everything was just gray. And again, think Eeyore. Because the brain hasn't figured out that it's safe to open those receptors up yet. It's still waiting to get flooded with those drugs again. So those receptors are closed. So not enough of the happy chemicals and the calming chemicals are getting through. So the person starts to feel blah. And there's a lot more technical explanations for this, but for the purposes of your exam, that's, this is all you really need to know. Another aspect that we want to look at is the self-medication of mental health issues. If you've got a client who has depression and a substance use disorder, and most clients in the 20-some-odd years that I've been, been in practice, most clients that I've worked with have concurrent depression, anxiety, ADHD, PTSD, any or all of those. Whether the depression is caused as a result of brain changes from using the drug or whether the depression existed before the drug is irrelevant. If you have a person who is recovering from addiction and they're depressed, the likelihood that they're going to stay clean and sober long enough for their brain to completely rebalance is, is pretty slim. You know, we need to make sure that we address the depression and the anxiety and the PTSD and the ADHD and whatever other diagnoses are there so they don't feel a need to try to go back to their addiction just to feel better. Recovery. What is it? You know, we've been talking about addiction, but what is recovery? It is the improvement of health and wellness in order to live a self-directed life and strive to reach one's full potential. Each person is going to define that differently for themselves. But recover, which is why recovery is different for every single person. What is it, I ask my clients, that you see is important for you to live a rich and meaningful life? You know, what people, things, and experiences are important for you to have in your life to consider it a rich and meaningful life? Okay, that's what we work towards. So what's important to me is different than what's important to my son, is different than what's important to my best friend. And that's okay, but our recovery journeys would probably look a little different. Recovery involves the interaction between people's race and ethnicity, their gender, their sexual orientation, their family history, developmental stage, environment, culture, individual strengths, values, and needs. And you're like, what? Basically, we need to look at all aspects of the person and figure out 
how that contributes to their rich and meaningful life and figure out how that contributes to their stress or depression or anxiety so we can mitigate the problems and we can enhance the benefits so if their race or ethnicity causes them to feel discriminated against or oppressed or judged well that's going to be something that we've got to address with that person same thing with their gender or sexual orientation um, another thing that comes up with their gender is like we talked about earlier women tend to react differently to drugs than men do um, so we need to pay attention to that in the recovery process family history we're looking at who's more susceptible and what did they learn from their family in terms of why to use substances why not to use substances and how to cope with life on life's terms you know if they came from a family that had difficulty with impulse control and coping skills then they probably never learned any which means they're gonna have to start learning them now um, if they came from a family that had good coping skills and didn't have a lot of substance use then we can build off those coping skills that already exist the developmental stage they started using at somebody who starts earlier is going to have a different recovery path than somebody who didn't develop addictive behaviors until their 30s for example the environment that they live in if somebody is currently living in a stressful drug-infested environment their re recovery plan and relapse prevention plan is going to look different than somebody who lives in an area um, where they can feel relatively free from drugs and alcohol for example where i live i live out in the country and you know we don't have dealers on the corner uh, we don't have alcohol um, establishments we don't have liquor stores on the corner you know it's a good 15 20 minute drive to get to anywhere where you could get a substance and individual strengths needs and values what does the person bring to the table you know what does already works for them and what's important to them and that's going to help guide the recovery picture for them recovery begins with accepting that there's a problem that help is needed to overcome it and the responsibility for recovery from the problem and associated issues lies with the person not us we're clinicians we can help guide them along the way we can be their GPS but we are not able to drive that proverbial recovery car they have to drive it they have to actually make the turns you know if they miss the turn and you know start to relapse for example we can say you know just like the GPS says you know recalculating we can help them recalculate their uh, recovery plan but the person needs to take responsibility for getting themselves to the destination of recovery recovery is individualized and lifelong this is a new lifestyle it's not something you do for a week or three months it's something that you're going to do forever so people need to embrace this recovery lifestyle and say what is it that will help make a rich and meaningful life for me what do I want my life to look like what do I want my days to consist of when I'm healthy and happy in six months a year five years from now in many cases abstinence is the goal not all cases um, so but abstinence is a good goal for a lot of different addictive behaviors if the person is willing to go there we'll talk about in motivational enhancement how you know we can work with people who aren't ready to embrace abstinence as 
a recovery goal. But obviously, if you're not using, then the brain can rebalance itself and do what it needs to do. If you're continuing to use, then you're going to continue to maintain um, a disequilibrium in the neurotransmitters. Harm reduction can be considered as an alternate goal. If someone is using, you know, for example, smoking cessation, there are cigarettes out there that have a lower nicotine content. There are cigarettes out there that are, you know, produce less of the chemicals, the nicotine and, and stuff that make people feel how they feel when they smoke. So the first thing people may do instead of quitting cold turkey is going to a lower nicotine cigarette or a lower nicotine chewing tobacco and then starting to cut down the number of cigarettes from there to the point where, you know, they've reduced harm. And some people will say, I still want to be able to smoke, you know, at this particular time. Well, you know, if you go from smoking three packs a day to smoking, you know, half a pack a week, that's certainly a lot better. Is it totally the best? No, but it's a lot less detrimental. Relapse occurs when a person is unaware of the process of recovery or unable to accomplish the tasks required at each stage of recovery. So the things that they need to do in order to get better in order to deal with their stuff. If they're unable to accomplish those tasks, they're likely going to relapse because accomplishing those tasks means developing alternatives to use and addressing the problems caused by use. If people start to relapse, then we need to drop back and go, okay, why didn't this plan work? How can we help you accomplish these tasks? We need to set smaller goals, different goals. Maybe you need other resources. Relapse and people feeling like they're headed towards a relapse, these are learning opportunities. Relapse can also occur when people lack adequate access to treatment and support. Treatment isn't always necessary. Some people quit by going to self-help groups and doing self-help stuff, or some people make a decision and they quit and they get through it. Those are the minority. Um, Support is really important regardless of how you do it. The support of the people you live with, your friends, etc. It's really hard, for example, to quit smoking if all of your friends smoke and they smoke around you um, and you're just constantly being exposed to the triggers. So it's important that you have adequate access to support and, and resources. Resources necessary to achieve sustained recovery include personal resources, you know, um, your wherewithal, your coping skills, your ability to get enough food, um, your ability to get quality sleep, and your ability to access any medications needed, for example, safe housing, you know, all of those things that help you feel safe, secure, and calm. Family and social resources are there to provide support and encouragement and, you know, ideally not add additional stress. And community resources are also necessary. People do a lot better if they've got jobs and volunteer activities that can help them interrelate with other people and develop more of a social network, but also helps them reduce stress and feel more financially independent and um, better about themselves. Personal recovery capital. Uh, your physical health. You know, if somebody is physically healthy, they are going to be less likely to be depressed, anxious, angry. Think about when you're sick or you're in pain. What's your mood like? And think about when you're really happy um, or when you're not in a lot of pain or you're sick. Hopefully, you feel happier. Financial stability, like I said, reduces a lot of stress, which can help people 
prevent relapse. Health insurance and prescription coverage. Just because somebody's not on psychotropic medications doesn't mean they don't need to be on medications. Low thyroid can contribute to feelings of depression and lack of energy, which can make people want to use to get energy, whether it's caffeine or some other stimulant. Um, and there are all kinds of other hormone imbalances and physiological things that can be easily addressed and treated that can lead people to feel anxious, angry, energyless, stressed out, and increase their likelihood of relapse. So they need to have the ability to go see the doctor regularly to keep their body machine in working order and prescription coverage to get any medications they need to keep everything functioning. They need safe shelter conducive to recovery. So that means a safe place where you are physically and emotionally safe and not exposed to addictions. You're not exposed to alcohol or other drugs um, or anything that might tempt you to relapse. And people can relapse on alternate addictions. If you can't access your addiction of choice, maybe it's alcohol, maybe the person turns to smoking or eating or doing something else when they get stressed instead of dealing with what's causing their stress. Personal recovery capital also includes clothing, food, and transportation. Let's help the person get their basic needs met. Your values are also considered personal recovery capital. Values that contribute to a desire to interact with others, that contribute to the desire to be honest, loyal, um, hopeful, faithful, um, determined. All those values contribute to a recovery lifestyle. People's knowledge, education, and skills can help them get jobs and solve problems, which reduces stress. Interpersonal effectiveness and communication skills improves those social relationships, which not only reduces stress in relationships, but it increases the strength of those relationships. Self-awareness, esteem, and self-efficacy are recovery capital elements that help people feel okay about themselves, so they're not relying on somebody else to tell them they're okay. And they feel like they have the ability to do things. Self-efficacy is the belief that you can make a change. You can help yourself recover or accomplish a goal. People who have hope and optimism tend to be a lot better off in recovery. If they have a sense of meaning and purpose, you know, why am I here? What's my function? How do I benefit the world? What am I grateful for? All of those things can help prevent relapse. And a perception of the past, present, and future. Understanding that, you know, some of the things that happened in the past may have really sucked. Um, we can't change that. But understanding that that is the past and it doesn't have to continue to affect you in the present. Understanding that things may happen in the present that really suck. But you have the ability to deal with them and the resources that you can reach out to in order to deal with them. So a perception of self-efficacy, ability to handle life on life's terms in the present, even if unfortunate things happen. And a perception of the future as something that's only going to get better. You know, a realistic perception of what's going to happen and what to expect. And the fact that, you know, again, good things are going to happen and you want to hold on to those. And bad things are going to happen, but you can deal with those. So understanding that the future is not going to be smooth sailing. There are going to be some hiccups along the way. There always are. But the person can deal with it. So encouraging them and making sure they have a realistic perception of the past, present, and future can all help prevent relapse. Family of choice 
and social recovery capital. And I talk about family of choice because not everybody's blood relatives are good support systems. So whoever the person defines as their family, whoever they can lean on for support, that's their family of choice. And those people are going to be super helpful when the person starts to feel stressed, depressed, or just starts craving that feeling, that high again. And community recovery capital provides emphasis on efforts to address and reduce stigma. So people are able to say, I'm addicted and I need help. The availability of diverse local role models who are out there going, I had depression and I recovered. I had alcohol addiction and I recovered. A continuum of recovery-focused substance abuse, mental health, and medical treatment. We have to treat all three aspects of the person. Needs to be available. So if a person realizes that, hey, it's okay to ask for help, and look, there are some really successful, awesome people who, who are in recovery, I want to achieve recovery, where do I do it? They need to have somewhere to go. And there need to be other available resources. Where I came from, we called them wraparound resources um, that include food, shelter, clothing, transportation, child care, training, and employment opportunities. So this is where the community really comes in. We need to make sure that people get their basic needs met. And ideally, there are multiple recovery support organizations. Not everybody is going to embrace the 12 steps, and that's okay. There's smart recovery. There's celebrate recovery. There are other recovery movements that are coming out all the time. And it's important for people to find a place where they feel accepted and they can get support for their recovery journey, for their health and wellness journey. So we've talked about the definition of addiction. Now, substance use disorder is characterized by using more over a longer period of time than intended, spending more money than intended, um, inability to quit or attempts to quit and not being able to, um, experiencing negative consequences physically, socially, employment, financially, or legally as the result of use, and continuing to use despite negative consequences. Also, foregoing important things like hobbies and activities in order to use. So things like going to your kid's baseball game that you would have done, you decide not to go to so you can go to the bar. That's an indication that there is a substance use disorder. Characteristics of a chronic disease are that it is progressive and fatal. Um, so we want to make sure that people recognize that this doesn't go away. It can go into remission. It is preventable, and it is treatable. We can put it into remission, um, but it generally never goes away. Factors influencing addiction range the gamut from genetics and biology to family relationships and environment. Addiction ranges along a continuum from social use to risky use to substance abuse to substance dependence. There are a lot of different theories of causation, including the moral model, which says, you know, it's all about the choices you make and your values and your morals and basically willpower, um, all the way down to uh, the blended model that says, you know, we really don't know what causes it for, we can't predict who's going to develop addiction, but we do know some things that contribute to the development of addiction where we can help people um, mitigate those factors. And recovery capital comes in the form of personal recovery capital, everything from physical health to personal values, strengths, and problem-solving abilities, 
family and social recovery capital, those people you can rely on to help you out um, emotionally, interpersonally, keep you from being lonely, help you when the problems arise, and just help you when there is a uh, desire to use again. And community recovery capital means a community that embraces the idea of recovery, has role models for recovery, and has services that can help people address their physical, psychological um, needs as they relate to recovery, in addition to the wraparound services needed for people to feel happy, healthy, and whole including food, shelter, employment, clothing, etc. All right. Well, thank you for being with me, and I will talk to you in the next podcast.